passage comes from Revelation 5, 1 through 10. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed with, up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lamb that is from the tribe of Judah and the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This is from God's Word. Each summer, my three brothers and I take a trip, unless there's a pandemic, and then we Zoom every Tuesday night, but I digress. It's a little earlier in this message to begin digressing, but two years ago, we went to Atlanta, and on our drive from Atlanta down to South Mississippi to Hattiesburg to spend time with our mom, we stopped in Montgomery, Alabama, and there we visited the Legacy Museum and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. And here's a photo of the, the entranceway there. And the memorial is made up of 800 six-foot-tall steel monuments. There's one monument for each county in the United States in which there was docu a documented lynching of a black person. The names of those who were lynched in that county or engraved on that specific monument. And I have to tell you that it was surreal, it was moving, it was powerful just walking through that memorial. When you enter, the monuments are at ground level, you're walking beside them. But the walkway slopes downward so that you are eventually looking up at the monuments as if you were looking up at someone who had been lynched. There's a duplicate of each of these 800 monuments that have been laid in the ground as if they were caskets or as if, if they were gravestones. So it looks like this vast, huge graveyard. Here's a photo of the monument for the county in which I grew up, Forest County, Mississippi. It was named for Nathan Bedford Forrest, the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. And I've often wondered if my black classmates knew growing up that our county was named after that guy. I didn't realize it until my early childhood. But here you see the names of nine black men who were lynched 
in Forest County. Sadly, Kansas is represented. Here's a monument for Crawford County, Kansas. I share this with you uh, to, to just say that the deaths of George Floyd, Minnesota, Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, the death of Breonna Taylor in Kentucky, and the deaths of many, many others did not happen in a vacuum. They happened in the context of our country's history with slavery, uh, racial terror, lynchings, and segregation. You probably remember your reaction when you saw the video of George Floyd. I remember mine. I was watching the video on my phone and about, about three minutes in, I started yelling at the phone. I said, no, what? No. And I can only imagine the reaction of my black brothers and sisters, the black community. It must have been must have been much deeper, much more visceral. And so today we're beginning a conversation about racism and injustice. And although racism is manifested in many different ways in many different communities, uh, because of what's happening in our country today, we're going to limit our focus to racism against blacks. Having said that, the things we learn in this conversation will definitely apply in all different contexts. Before we look at our passage, uh, allow me to make a few clarifying comments that may may not help you hear what I'm trying to say this morning. First, please believe me when I say that my objective, my only objective here this morning is to urge us to engage this issue as Christians, as genuine followers of Christ. Uh, we're not going to agree on all the details when it comes to pol policies and politics and narratives. This issue is so vast, it's so complex, it's so wide-ranging, I don't even think we should go for unanimity. But actually, I think God wants us to go for something much, much deeper. I think God wants us to be united in the gospel and so compassionate, so compassionate doesn't really matter if we don't agree on all the details. I believe God wants us to be so humble and so teachable that we're not afraid to go anywhere that he wants to lead us. Second, please know that I am leaving many issues unaddressed, significant issues. Uh, I'm not going to say anything about rioting this morning. I'm not going to talk about how, how difficult, how often almost impossible it is to be a cop in many cities across our country. Uh, I will say this, though, that, that I have just incredible respect for the Riley County Police Department. I'm actually a volunteer chaplain with two other pastors who happen to be black, but two other pastors in our community. I'm friends with many officers, police officers, cops, corrections officers. And so please don't interpret my silence on these issues. Uh, misinterpret them this morning. So today, I want to talk as a white pastor to a predominantly white church about our response to racial injustice. I'm going to first remind us, uh, that, remind us all that God is establishing a kingdom that includes people from every ethnicity. That's the first thing. And then we're going to move on and talk about how that reality should inform our response to the current turmoil and pain in our country. 
Revelation 5, 1 through 10 talks about God's vision. It talks about God's vision for an eternal, multi-ethnic kingdom. Olivia read the passage a few minutes ago, and it records this fascinating vision in which John, who wrote Revelation, he sees a scroll that's sealed up with seven seals. So think about a scroll that's rolled up, and there are seven wax seals on that scroll. And that scroll represents God's plan for establishing his kingdom on earth, and that will involve defeating his enemies once and for all, and then making all things new, a new heaven and a new earth. But the problem was is that no one worthy in heaven or on earth, there was no one found worthy to open the scroll. There was nobody who was worthy who could, could unfold God's plan for the ages. And when, God, when John realized that, he wept and wept and wept. In other words, John felt the way we feel today, stuck in this world that is so irrevocably broken. He felt like we do, that it looks like evil is winning. It felt like we do. It looks like Satan is more powerful than God. It looks like injustice and death have the last word. But as John wept, it was revealed to him. Actually, there is one who is worthy. He is the risen Christ. He was the lamb who was slain. And so we read in verses 9 and 10 that both the divine and the human beings surrounding the throne declared in song why Jesus was worthy. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break the seals for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And so Jesus is worthy to break the seals. He is the one who's worthy to bring all of history to its God-ordained conclusion. Why? Because he's the one who purchased for God, he redeemed for God with his blood, those from every tribe those from every tongue, that's a reference to languages, those from every people and nation, and that term is ethnos. We get our word ethnicity or ethnic. And so the redeemed will reign upon the earth. All of human history is moving toward the day when the redeemed will comprise the eternal multi-ethnic kingdom of God. Let that soak in for a minute. The redeemed will comprise an eternal, multi-ethnic kingdom, the kingdom of God. What that means is that if you don't like people who don't talk like you, if you don't like people who don't look like you, you will not like heaven. You will not like the new heaven and the new earth. By all accounts, George Floyd was a follower of Christ and therefore part of God's kingdom. This means that my relationship with George Floyd in God's eternal multi-ethnic kingdom is as permanent and significant as any relationship 
in my life. And the entire flow of scripture is headed this direction toward this kingdom. God created humanity in his image through the fall. Sin introduced selfishness, violence, murder. God's judgment after the Tower of Babel scattered the nation, confused nations, confused the languages. God chose Abraham. God chose Israel to be a light to the nation. Israel failed miserably in this calling. In a supreme act of humility, Jesus took on flesh and blood to redeem flesh and blood from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. After the resurrection, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit. And you know, on the day of Pentecost, they spoke in tongues. It was the tongues of the nations. People heard them declaring God in their own tongue. And he gave the the, the mission of making disciples from every nation, every ethnicity. But the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament describes how hard it was for the early church to get this vision, to live consistently, to understand that Gentiles really aren't culturally and racially inferior. And so the Jewish-Gentile divide, it was definitely religious, but it was also racial, let me just give one example. Galatians 2 describes how Peter did not want to be seen eating with Gentiles when some of his Jewish Christian friends came from Jerusalem, and so he withdrew. And Paul says, I confronted him to his face. Paul told him that your life is betraying your gospel. Your hypocrisy is out of step with the gospel. Peter's hypocrisy was doubly shocking if you read Acts 10 and 11, because that's where Peter was given this vision of this sheep coming down, all these unclean animals. God said, take and eat. And God told him in no uncertain terms, you should never, you should never conclude that any food or any person is unclean. And so he had this, this powerful, undeniable spiritual experience. And yet years later, this not-so-subtle racism crept in. And that seems to be the challenge for the white church in America. We need to be open to the possibility that our lives are not consistent with the gospel that we proclaim. You see, we believe that God is establishing an eternal multi-ethnic kingdom. And yet, it's possible that the way we think and the way that we speak and the way that we act might be saying, yeah, we believe that, but we really believe God is especially, maybe primarily interested in us, other people, whatever, but he's really interested in us. And we should acknowledge that the white church has made great strides. We have. I grew up in, in South Mississippi where our schools were segregated. Uh, my sixth grade class was 100% white. Uh, when we integrated, my seventh grade class was 50% white, 50% black. When I grew up, all of our churches were segregated, I think. Ours was. And one Sunday morning, uh, when a black college student from Nigeria walked the aisle. By the way, he was a college student that our denomination's missionaries had led to Christ and had sent him to our denominational school. When he walked the aisle and he wanted to join the church, our church blew up. It was fine for him to worship, sort of. 
but it was not okay for him to become a member. They were, this, the signal was loud and clear. You are not equal to us. And I remember as a kid, I remember business meetings where people would turn red in the face, veins bulging out of the neck, uh, people using every racial slur that you can imagine in church. And so that was a different day. Uh, about a third of the church left, our church integrated, and now there are many integrated churches. They're very common. So I think you'll, you'll agree that the white church in America has made great strides. But if you listen to our black brothers and sisters in Christ, you also have to agree that we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. And the black church is not monolithic. In other words, not everybody has the same voice, no, no more so than the white church in America. But the vast majority of the black voices that I'm hearing in our community and around the country would tell us, would tell me that our silence, that my silence is complicity. And that if we don't act differently, that we're part of the problem. And that's a hard diagnosis to hear, isn't it? But I ask, what if they're right? What if that's truth? If your heart is anything like mine, you recoil at the idea that you are complicit in racism in any way. I'm just living my life. I don't hate anybody. I'm not racist. Why are you getting in my face? Or maybe the issues we're talking about are just too complex and too emotional. And in the age of COVID, you may not feel like you have one, you don't have an ounce of energy to give to this. Uh, others, maybe you just don't feel like you can enter in. I got a text from a friend this, this week that was striking. And he was expressing how he and his wife are often overwhelmed at raising kids and staying home with COVID and with the aftermath of George Floyd's death. He said this, we find ourselves shutting down more often than ever, staring off into space, unable to engage our minds because we're swamped with it all. It's all too big, too much, too many things to solve and figure out. And we feel incredibly guilty when we say, let's just focus on raising our family. Because everyone on social media tells us that if we don't march or we don't do something, we're part of the problem and that we're racist ourselves. Ugh. Do you feel that? I feel that sometimes. Well, perhaps the terminology and the categories and the movements associated with the racial tension in our country, uh, they, they trigger you. They send you to a bad place. I'm going to read a list now. If you've got a sharp object and you think you're going to be triggered, just set it down, okay? These may be terms, expressions that threaten you or offend you. Black Lives Matter, white privilege, institutional racism, police brutality, racial profiling, the term woke, mass incarceration of people of color, 
I have had enough conversations with enough of you to know that for many of you, everything on that list resonates deeply with you. They express and they represent deeply held convictions that you have about the racism in our country. And I've talked enough of you to know that for others of you, you have very negative emotions for almost every term, every expression I read. For others of you, perhaps, you don't know what you think about them. And so I mention these issues not to suggest that if you're a quote-unquote good Christian, whatever that is, that you'll agree with the proponents of everything I just mentioned. But what I am suggesting, what I'm pleading with you about, is that our commitment to an eternal multi-ethnic kingdom demands that we be humble and that we be teachable about these issues. What if there is such a thing as white privilege that makes me blind to many, many things that I say and do and makes me blind to many things that I don't say and don't do? It's not the case when I've been to other countries, but in this country, I am rarely in a room where I am a a minority racially. It, uh, It may just be the case that I don't know what I don't know. And so if I want to represent Jesus well in this world, I should want to know the answer to those questions. If I pray, God, your kingdom come, your your eternal multi-ethnic kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then I should want to know if there's anything in my heart, anything in my thinking, in my life, that will hinder that kingdom and that will. And so here's my plea. The plea is simply a challenge to cultivate these essential virtues in, a, in relation to the issue of racism. So we're going to talk about humility, empathy, and teachability. And honestly, if the Holy Spirit fills us full to overflowing, if these virtues ooze out of our, our, our speech and our actions, God could do in us and through us more than we can, can ask or imagine in, in relation to racial reconciliation. I'm convinced if we're actively cultivating these virtues, we don't have to be afraid of having hard conversations. These virtues will change the tone, they will change the motives, they will change everything about the conversation. God will lead us where we need to go as a church. We can actually have honest, difficult conversations with each other about complex issues like racism. But I would also say, equally strong, that if we are not cultivating these virtues, we would be better off remaining silent. I'm not saying we need to be 100% on all these things, but if we're not actively cultivating these virtues, please don't engage this issue. You'll cause chaos and disunity when God wants us to have a deep abiding unity that matters, the supernatural unity whereby we embody the gospel. So the first one is humility, 1 Peter 5, 5. In the same way, you who are younger, submit, to, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, not just some of you, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. 
because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. There's a type of pride in our world that's pervasive and sadly it's fairly pervasive in the church. It's a type of pride that says, if I don't agree with you, I have a right to flame you, insult you, slander you. By contrast, humility says, even though I disagree with you, you are created in God's image and therefore infinitely valuable. Therefore, humility will change the way that we engage the issue of racism. So Peter writes, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And so I would appeal to you, if you are more conservative in your theology, clothe yourselves in humility toward your more progressive brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you are more progressive in your politics, uh, I would encourage you, I would plead with you, clothe yourself in humility toward your more conservative brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not saying keep the peace by not talking honestly, but I'm saying that when you do speak, humility will make it clear, I care about you. I'm not just trying to win an argument. You are valuable. I put your needs, I I prefer you over myself. There's no way you can fake that type of humility. And so God's eternal multi-ethnic kingdom is not in jeopardy, okay? The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and Christ. What's in jeopardy is whether or not God can use us in extending that kingdom. Cultivate humility. Cultivate empathy. Romans 12, 15, Paul wrote, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so Paul is advocating that we enter into both the joys and the sorrows of the people around us. And we can't do that with everybody all the time. And we don't always know when other people are weeping. But it's hard to miss the fact that our black brothers and sisters in Christ are weeping these days. Are we weeping with them, both figuratively and literally? Are we weeping with them? Are we lamenting that there's so much pain, so much heartache in the black community? It was five years ago this month that a white man, a white supremacist, Dylan Roof, attended a Bible study at the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Emmanuel's one of the oldest black churches in the country. It's got a, a long, rich history in relation to the civil rights movement. He sat through that Bible study for about an hour, and when they turned to prayer, he stood up, pulled out a handgun, started shooting. Nine people dead, three wounded. The Sunday after that shooting here at Faith, we sang songs, we prayed prayers, and I preached a message and there was no mention of the shooting. After the service, Kimry Newsom came up to me. Uh, She's in Wisconsin now, but she gave me permission to share this. But she came up to me and told me, I'm disappointed in you. There was no mention of that shooting. 
And I said, hey, come talk to me. And uh, if you know Camry, if you invite her to come talk, she will come and she will talk. And she explained some things to me. And I gave her the green light. If, you ever, if there's ever anything I need to know that you think I've missed, you've got the green light. But she explained to me how for many black Christians, the church is the last safe place in our country. The church, it's a place of refuge. And that church shooting had shattered all of that for her. And so we should have wept with her that Sunday. Of course, there are tensions here. We don't know everything that troubles every person at faith. We can't pray for every troubling current event every single week. But I'm struck by how clueless I was. And I'm increasingly struck by how clueless I still am about many things that our black brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing. If we're clueless, we cannot weep with those who weep. And that leads to the third virtue, teachability. We've got to be teachable. We talk about this all the time. My dear brothers and sisters, James 1, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And so James gives these three rapid-fire commands. Be quick to listen, quick to hear. If you're quick to hear, you really want to get what the other person has to say. You lean in because you're eager to understand it. We need to be quick to hear when it comes to racism in our day. Second, we need to be slow to speak. We're eager to hear, but we pause before we speak. We're more interested in learning. You never learn anything by speaking. We're more interested in learning and understanding than being heard. And then third, we're slow to anger. And of course, there is a place for righteous indignation. There is such a thing as justified anger. And I, I have to believe that there is a right for a black community to, to, to have anger about what's happening in 2020 in America. But when it comes to our discussions as a church family, generally speaking, our anger does not accomplish what God wants to accomplish. And so if there's anger, it should be more like the garnish than the entree, the, the sprig of parsley than the steak in the middle of the plate. Uh, anger will poison your soul. Anger will mute your voice. People find it very easy to dismiss angry people. The current political and social climate in the United States doesn't exactly encourage being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. But why can't we be countercultural when it comes to this issue? Uh, let's become teachable in relation to what our black brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing. If we want to be available to God as he's building this eternal multi-ethnic kingdom, we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger in this conversation. And if we're teachable, we can learn incredible things incredibly fast. We can have conversations with our, our black friends. I found that my black friends are, are very willing to share with me their, their experiences uh, related to racism. Uh, they're usually very patient with my dumb questions. And that's probably because they're friends. That's what friends do. But I will tell you that almost all of them have a story to tell about being profiled or being accused of shoplifting 
were being pulled over time and time and time again for no good reason. I've heard it too often to believe that that's somehow coincidence. As well, if we're teachable, we can, we can learn on our own. We have so many resources, books and blogs and videos, uh, both by Christians and others. And we're, we're actually compiling a list uh, that we're going to share with you, I think, in the e-blast later, on, uh, later this week on Tuesday. And we're going to make this list available. And we're actually not going to endorse everything on the list. My encouragement to you is to read something that you are pretty sure you don't agree with. Read it with humility. Read it with a teachable heart. Read it going and say, if I, if I di- end up disagreeing with 90% of what this, this article says or what this, this lecture or this sermon says, that 10% is valuable to me. That 10% is valuable because I, I want to be useful to God and his kingdom. We pray, God, show me my blind spots. Show me what I don't know. And these, this type of learning, taking the time and the effort to learn about these issues is something of a gift to our black friends. Just taking the time to become conversant with these issues and let God do a deep work that will help us empathize and show humility. We're also discussing a number of ways to continue this conversation. Uh, we will return to this topic periodically on Sunday mornings. Uh, we're exploring ways that we can have discussion groups or maybe reading groups. As well, there are various organizations that offer experiences, immersive experiences for a day or for a weekend to help us understand the dynamics of being part of a majority culture. And so we're going to continue this conversation. And again, the goal is this is, this is a kind of a curse for a church like ours. We just want to study, just keep talking to keep... The goal is to become people who are more compassionate, people who actually are part of the solution, not just thinking the right thoughts, but actually being people who can, can be used by God in our community and beyond. Earlier this week, I decided to message one of my, my black high school classmates, uh, Ollie Kendrick, Ollie Bell Kendrick, and uh, we became Facebook friends a few years ago. I have not seen Ollie, I think, in 43 years, but I sent him a message, and uh, I asked him the question I I posed uh, at the introduction. I said, hey, Ollie, when we were growing up in Hattiesburg, were you aware that our county was named after Nathan Bedford Forrest, the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. And uh, he, text, he, he sent me a message back. He said, nope, I was 19 years old uh, at Alcorn State University, a historically black university. His history professor told him about that and kept reminding him about that, uh, apparently. And so... I asked him next, I said, Ollie, is there anything that you want to tell, you want me to tell the church I pastor in light of today's topic? And Ollie sent me his uh, telephone number and said, call me. So we talked. Here's the story. Uh, Ollie, uh, Ollie's wife uh, grew up in West Virginia and attended a, a Pentecostal church there. When Ollie and his wife moved back to West Virginia, 
Uh, they were part of that church, and they were the only black family in that church. Eventually, Ollie became uh, an usher, a treasurer, and an elder in that church. And as an elder, he developed this friendship, this deep friendship with a man named Bill Roth. And they served together. They became great friends. And one day, Bill told Ollie, said, Ollie, I used to be part of the KKK before I came to Christ. And so there was a day when Bill never would have been friends with Ollie. But Ollie told me that one Sunday morning before they took communion, and we're, we're going to take communion in a minute, that Bill and Ollie went up on the stage and they washed each other's feet. And Ollie told me that when Bill died a few years ago, his daughter called Ollie and said, Ollie, we want you to come and speak at the funeral, which he did. And so Bill Roth was changed by the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, first to the Jews, but also, also to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. As we celebrate the Lord's table this morning, praise God for the power of the gospel to turn a racist into someone with compassion. Praise God that the, that the gospel unites all who believe into an eternal multi-ethnic kingdom. When Paul wrote the church at Corinth, uh, he had to confront them because their celebration of the Lord's table magnified their disunity, whereas it was supposed to be an expression of their unity. In their case, the wealthy were eating and drinking before the poor got there. And so consequently, they were eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. And so Paul said, examine yourself when you eat the bread and drink the cup. And given today's topic, I think it's appropriate that we examine ourselves so that we don't eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you for the power of the gospel. We put no confidence in ourselves to address this complex, far-reaching issue, issues surrounding racism. We can barely manage our own lives, much less fix something that has simmered in our country for hundreds of years. But we believe in that Jesus' death and resurrection and enthronement are powerful and sufficient to change the human heart and ultimately to transform cities and nations. And so we come to the Lord's table. Search our hearts, O oh God. Show us if there's anything that's hurtful, hurtful to you first and foremost, but also hurtful to ourselves and therefore to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.